0: It can feel, sometimes, like a maelstrom. Information overload, the endless disgorging and circulation of images, images before words, ever faster, ever more fleeting. Where's truth? Everything you know disappears into the vortex, even the people to whom you used to look for some certainty for some still point in the turning world look increasingly unwise, corrupted by it. Expertise put in service of some tawdry political point. You can't shake the feeling of suspicion from, well, everything. The headlines lie. The comments and pictures on social media lie. The politicians lie, but they always have, sure. But is there anyone who isn't a politician now, then? Because God knows it's not just them who are lying anymore. And when you do find the truth, it feels like a tiny candle flame in a cyclone. And you fear it just might go out. You're listening to Navarre FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm James Butler. You've heard about fake news, you might even be sick of talking about it, you might be disgusted by the way some people deploy it, between choking off any semblance of critical thought or even the possibility of opposition, or you might think that they don't take it seriously enough. You might think, like I think, of that line from Adorno, that the transmutation of every question of truth into a question of power has increasingly erased the distinction between truth and falsehood you might feel under the surface of the simple question about fake news and real news lies a deeper set of questions less easy to resolve more troubling about the world in which we live i know someone else who thinks like this because i've been reading his
1: book hello my name is marcus Gilroy Ware. i never quite know how to introduce myself to audiences really Um, my day job is as an academic at ue bristol teaching journalism students and media production students but To me, I consider this almost a form of infiltration into the academy. In fact, my my goals are really kind of, I suppose, trying to make the world better in some way. And working with young people and and, um, working in education feels like the best way to kind of secure, you know, to work towards a future that that feels bright. So that's that's what I do. Um, And I kind of, I guess, once upon a time, I was just a kind of lowly um, developer and designer and stuff like that. And then I kind of got more and more political and ended up um, writing books about fake news and social media and these kinds of things.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that is like the place to start because I think it's, it's true of sort of both of your books. Um, You know, they both start with these like quite these concepts that are quite central to liberal political discourse, liberal political journalism, so and they, they can sometimes be obsessions for them. Um, so in this case, fake news and, and previously social media. And, and I think the book does something really interesting, which is that it's not so much actually about fake news as it is the sort of social system which produces both the thing and the concept and the discourse around it and gives it such prominence. Um, why, was, why is it such a useful concept to start from? Uh, and if you can forgive sort of the slight vulgarisation, what's it really about?
1: <laughs> no, that's not a vulgarisation. I mean, that's kind of the best way into issues is to kind of think about what they're really about or, you know, to go sort of a, around something or, you know, through through something. And, you know, my my first book was very much about kind of um, using social media as a hook to do that. And I think this time around fake news, um, about four years ago, the phrase fake news came into our language um, as a means for trying to process the shock of the initial Trump victory in 2016. And I think um, that and the phrase post-truth got kind of wheeled out and used a lot. And maybe it's just my personality, but when everyone starts kind of honing in on like a very, what seems like a very sort of neat concept and just using the phrase over and over again, it prompts something of an eye roll from me. And um, I just kind of never, it always always feels a bit sort of complacent to just, um, just you know, reach for these kinds of, uh, you know, approximate, nearby, simplistic-sounding kind of um, concept. So I wanted to kind of look at that. And um, it's been about, well, it's been about, yeah, those four years, really, of researching this book and writing it. And at a certain point, I had an epiphany, which is that this is really not about fake news or disinformation on its own. This is about a lot a lot more things being fake than that. And part of this book is about trying to understand, you know, what people are calling populism. There's another one of those kinds of easy concept that turns out to be a bit more slippery but understanding where all of this kind of you know proto sort of fascist anger is coming from um and tying that to the sort of crisis of of information believable information itself the optionality of you know factual belief and so forth and the other crises that we associate with late capitalism for example the environmental crises and realizing that the problem is is the sort of hollowing out of of at least western democracy in the way that a number of, of political scientists chiefly among them for me Wendy Brown um have been sort of identifying as part of, w- of what they call neoliberalism and so kind of seeing that hold on a second if people have lost in, lost faith in the systems that we sort of you know nominally belong to um then it isn't just going to be kind of the news and information that's 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 fake and meaningless and or considered optional. It's going to be, um, the whole sense of, um, of everything that system has to offer, you know, all different kinds of authority and, um, sort of just what's, what's, what, you know, the whole structure is being, is being rejected really. And so that's where the book then goes. It sort of tries to weave through all of these different, um, these different areas, you know, where has populism come from? What has neoliberalism done to the world, and and what has neoliberalism done to our, our systems of information?
0: It's it's striking actually that so the book sort of opens with a, the, a sort of uh, you know lightning fast tour of the kind of post war these kind of successive eras of the post war period, and and really it, it becomes I think very clear uh, in your telling that 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 the fake news question is really very much that that question about uh, really, a fake democracy? Yes, uh, and that that seems kind of pretty essential to your account. Um, I, I guess that, like the, the 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 sort of the liberal pushback on this stuff, will be that oh well, you know, you're joining in the populist parade and saying, you know, oh well, you're saying democracy is fake. Shouldn't you be protecting our uh, uh, hallowed uh, uh, democratic institutions? You're engaged in a project of norm erasure yourself.
1: Um, you know, I, I love liberal pushbacks like that because they're so easy to to kind of disarm. I mean, of course, anyone reading the book would know that I'm calling for greater democracy. But I, I think that you don't achieve democracy by pretending it's already there um, or by pretending that a system that's democratic for a few people at the top is actually democratic for everyone when it just isn't. And there's a whole chapter where I explore the, the kind of tendency for those who even if socially liberal in many ways, are sort of invested in the status quo to erase um, the forms of, of justice, in particular economic justice, that are actually, you know, an obstacle to the very forms of, of democracy and um, society that they claim already exist. And that that has a sort of, not only is it hypocritical, but that, that whole process of pretending that there's something there or believing there's something there without seeing that it's not there only adds more fuel to the fire of people then being anger, angry at the system. we.
0: Right, I mean, I think maybe the, 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 the way to jump into this actually is is to think. So you, you obviously have, a, you, you spend a lot of time in the book thinking about technology <clears throat> and the way that technology is deployed both by sort of critics and, and you know, actually in, in some ways sort of, uh, you know, techno-utopians as well, which is increasingly uh, prominent Tendency on the left of politics actually, sort of slightly surprisingly, and but 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 you know when people are talking about fake news, there often seems to me to be this instinct to treat it as a product of um, and therefore something that can be combated by technology itself. Um, so you know, fake news as a problem. Um, or or, you know everything that goes into it arises as a consequence of google of uh, social media of the ability to uh, masquerade as something uh uh, you know that that has all the visual cues of truth um, while in fact being uh you know either destructive or manipulative or whatever and so then the response is always well we can you know we should fact check and label and things like that um you it doesn't seem to me, certainly from your account, that you're, you, you, you lend much credence to the idea of there being any possible technical fix to this problem.
1: No, I mean, no one's denied technology has an impact on these problems. Um, and I think it's important for us to you know make space for the idea that, that, that technology is involved. Um, I think the problem for me is, is, as you say, where kind of techno-solutionism or techno-utopianism step in they make technology the issue. They say that you know um, fake news is a problem because of technology, without realizing that it's a political problem with political origins that go back quite a long way. And so, when you're centering technology either as the problem and you're blaming it, or you're kind of positing it as the solution, you're you're kind of rubbing out um, some of the actual kind of political and, and social and economic issues that might be at the cause. Um, of this, and and so social media platforms, insofar as they are the main technology people are talking about, um, we also um, miss an opportunity to talk about them as, you know, really the most predatory form of capitalism. You know, the most uh, that we've seen to date in, in in their kind of commodification of human attention and so forth. And um, by making them into technology and making it the conversation about technology, we miss the point there as well.
0: There's an interesting question here about the, these technologies. That, because obviously one of the problems here, one of the allied problems here, is the consequences or the democratic and political consequences of simply a system of information, overload, rapid circulation, uh, the speed, simply the speed with which um, both ideas uh, and, and opinions and things that are supposed to get you aroused and... Uh, piss you off, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Probably can't say that on air, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, so there's there's this speed problem, which I think is, you know, obviously, that that's a question that's endogenous to the technology as well. But there's, you know, th- there are these other questions which obviously sit in a constellation with it and obviously sit in a constellation with it in your account. So on the one hand, there's, there's speed, right, which is this, this quality of the technology itself, the speed of consumption, ever-increasing speed of consumption. Uh, but then there's the, the question of how we approach and relate to the sort of information that's that's spreading through you know through social media through fake news whatever uh, also through you know the mainstream press as well not shy uh, of disinformation itself um so there's a question i think I, I i suppose about you know how do we apportion uh blame or or what's interesting in this account because you know you have that question about speed but then you also have this question about you know what are the quality of ideas and reporting that is circulating and and what also you know you know what responsibilities do we have as consumers and as readers to uh in how we're approaching and consuming this stuff because you know it seems to me that very often in these accounts uh the concept of agency uh you know i want to avoid the phrase consumer agency because it's just sort of clapped out uh, neoliberal uh, hogwash <laughs> but, but you know but 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 reader agency or or, or agency in terms of literacy i think is, is is hugely important. does that make sense to you
1: Yes, it does I mean, I think the first thing to say there um, because it's very easy when you make certain forms of cultural criticism to sound like you're having a go at you know the people themselves, and you know even where there are widespread behaviors that seem irrational and and self destructive. My tendency is always to kind of, I'm cautious around that kind of response. I'd much rather say, well, what is it that's driving us towards these kinds of, of behaviors? And I think the onus should be on the people who have power in a given situation to explain why that power is kind of, you know, intentionally or otherwise leading to vast numbers of people, um, you know, behaving in a certain way. And so in the case of, of disinformation, you know, one of my major questions has been, well, you know, never mind the content of fake news. Why were we so susceptible as a society to believing some of these quite strange ideas? And, you know, there are a number of, of scholars who, more qualified than me who have talked about the kind of decline in the standards of our understanding of the world, um, such as Thomas E. Patterson. You know, the, what it is you even get with, a, let's say, high school education, you know, po- post-war period, 70s and kind of now. And that there is, and again, we want to risk kind of apportioning blame to the public but at the same time, say there is a sort of big problem around, I don't know, whether you could call it ignorance, but, but certainly, a lack of working knowledge of the systems of the world and how, how they operate, you know, and I, I'm very interested in conspiracy theories, not because they're sort of one of those topics that everyone loves talking about at the moment, but because but because there's such an interesting instance of that kind of, you know, there's lots of actual conspiracies out there in the world. And people, by and large, are not really interested in learning about them. They're much more interested in talking about, you know, the Illuminati and the flat earth and, you know, other kind of even more damaging and dangerous things like that. And, you know, there's lots of reasons for that. But we we are we lack the literacy to challenge capitalism, you know, which is... Behind so many of these problems, and that's because it's structurally deprived from us. Why would capitalism give you the things you need, equip you with the with the knowledge and the, and the kind of processes you need to be able to challenge it? It, it obviously permits a great degree of kind of safe anti-capitalist um, symbology. You know, people have Mark Fisher and others have talked about how you know when the bad guy in a Disney movie is a is a CEO. Um, it doesn't really achieve anything, but other than making the system stronger. Um, but then, you know, when it comes to actually changing the system, we don't—we're not really given what we need to do anymore. So then we end up kind of making these sorts of weird forms of of disinformation that have an origin in the structures of the world, um, but actually lead us further away from being able to challenge those structures rather than closer.
0: Yeah, I want to come to conspiracy theory in a bit, and I think the way to get there actually is to is to pick up the thread that you're putting on here um which it seems to me is at least in some regard about ideology right and you spend some time in the book talking about ideology and thinking about ideology um and i think maybe the 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 thing that would be worth stressing just initially is is for you to explain the sense in which and it's a quotation i think from Stuart hall um you know you stress that politics is downstream from culture why is that so important
1: well, actually, that's um, that isn't Stuart Hall. That's Andrew Breitbart. Oh God! <laughs> Which I, I just popped that in there because I wanted it to be shown that this is not some—it's not only the left who are talking about these things. I think there are people within the right and within the outright who also understand quite well um, the power of culture and ideas to either shift the balance of power or keep it where it is. And um, when I say we lack, you know, literacy, I think part of it is, is lacking literacy around that we kind of know that not everything is as it seems that you know things are sort of sometimes a spectacle that they're performative that there's sort of something else behind them I mean that uh, Stuart Ewan's history of PR for example and the ways that that's been sort of you know massively proliferated in the last few decades um to sort of keep the balance of power where it is um I think is something that when people talk to me about fake news as this sort of like oh suddenly you know it's post-truth and people don't believe facts anymore what makes me roll my eyes most of all, I think, is the sense that actually, in terms of looking at discourse, you know, and, and the kind of culture out there, um, it all became quite sort of um, non-literal and non-factual quite a long time ago. Um, you know, these characters like uh, Frank Luntz, for example, who are fo- focus group and focus group and focus group to be able to kind of shape politics in one direction or another. Dominic Cummings is another animal of the same species, really and i think there's a lot of people on the left who've already spent a lot of time talking about this kind of stuff but i don't see enough of that out there in kind of mainstream discourse and i i just think it would be really useful for people to know more about how that works and and for us to all be educated a bit better about that
0: right i mean it, it, it does seem to me that there's there is this account that emerges or that could emerge uh, of this sort of that this you know the way in which people pick up on like what i suppose you might call the the, the sort of champaterian approach to politics, which is very much this kind of you know, cynical exercise in understanding how politicians will win votes via everything from sort of simple outright sympathy to, to downright uh, emotional manipulation. And obviously, you mentioned Frank Luntz and Dominic Cummings, sort of transatlantic disciples of, of, of this, this method. But I think there seems to me to be a bind on the left on this stuff, because there is An anxiety, uh, I think it's a kind of instinctive anxiety that grows out of people who particularly who have, uh, you know, backgrounds in sort of non-electoral politics or extra-parliamentary politics, say, well, what we don't want to do is manipulate people into acting in a certain way, right? We want people to see the truth and, you know, act in accordance with the truth. You know, I I think it's a very commendable thing in some ways. But I think, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that politics works entirely like that. And it seems to me that, the account of ideology is something that's actually really pretty important here, right? Because it can pull us towards understanding. And I think it's something that you actually stress in the book is that, you know, ideology and the way that our beliefs about the world are framed by our emotions, our predispositions, our group identities, you know, it's not just at work in other people. It's not just something that they over there have, but it's at work on us as well so we're quite good at pointing it out in others but maybe do you have any sense of where you know if we were to attempt to examine our own ideological predispositions where should we be looking
1: well one of the things as far as where we should be looking um i think that i'm quite interested in is is um sort of positivism and the kinds of systems of categories and and, and certain functions that we we heavily sort of reify you know, without even necessarily realising that we've done it. I mean, this idea that you can just respond to people who are sort of angrily denying, you know, certain aspects of reality and say, oh, but that's not the truth. You know, the truth is this. As if the truth wasn't a, an extremely loaded concept that has been, you know, misused repeatedly throughout the kind of, you know, the age that I'm talking about as far as PR and in really the last hundred years or so. Um, and not to kind of rehash the whole discussion around the left and postmodernism and all these kinds of things but i think we need to be honest that like the the tr- these kinds of concepts i mean science is another one like i i've always been mocked by my friends and family for being the kind of science kid or whatever because i'm interested in that stuff with all my friends are in the humanities but at the same time um we know that like science again has been misused to push lots of things that were kind of in some way whether it's climate change denial or you know nazi science back in you know i mean it's hard for me to say what others ought to do but you know i think questioning and and sort of learning to be not like super super skeptical but also not too positivist and unskeptical about these um uh, these kinds of constructs and systems and so forth and so in the book i make a contrast between conspiracy theories that are kind of too suspicious including of things that we should Except, um and of kind of liberalism and centrism and these forms of positivism that are just not skeptical or suspicious enough and want to just rarefy the systems as they are democracy truth science without really thinking very carefully about you know the the forms of abuse that those um that those concepts open up that if, if you know or, or are, are open to if we don't um, in- interrogate them properly
0: yeah i mean i think there's a a, a danger and it's, it's interesting, I've seen it in sort of attempts to account for, uh, you know, why the left is losing, um, which seems to be a perennial debate, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but it's, it's it, the, these are kind of, you know, attempts to reanimate ideas around false consciousness. And, you know, like, I, I sympathize with with all the kind of historical critiques of false consciousness, right? Like this idea... The, this idea that the way that people behave could ever be so simple as to identify it with so pat a phrase, right? Like the, the uh, you know, people's motivations and, and the way in which they act are, are, I think, a great deal more complicated than that. Uh, and then is suggested by that. But is there anything there? I mean, is there anything there in the idea of false consciousness that might be useful to resurrect?
1: Yeah, I mean, there, I, I think there is. And, you know, obviously it's, it's a concept that's mostly critiqued by the people who want to deny its existence at all. But actually, I would say, let's embrace the idea of false consciousness with the idea that there's nobody whose consciousness isn't false to some degree. Right? We're not pointing the finger at each other and mm. saying, your consciousness is false, and my consciousness is is real and the truth. You know, that's where we, again, fall into the sort of dangerous territories of positivism and, and simplicity. Um I mean, it's a basic Marxian concept, the idea of historical materialism, the idea that our consciousness is formed by the age in which we live and the social and material relations that we, you know, exist in. And um, I don't really see why that has to be such a kind of why that premise has to be such a controversial idea. You know, of course, you know, you see the number of people, for instance, who voted for Trump in this election. Um I believe that the the con of consciousness that leads to that however much we might be horrified um, by that as an outcome needs to be sort of like dealt with and understood as a feature of the kinds of consciousness that this particular age in history has produced you know um, and we can look at it sort of as a as a cultural feature or have a sort of I mean o- much overlooked at the moment in the social sciences is the field of cultural studies but actually it's something we all I think ought to be rushing back to to try to make sense of some of these very Otherwise, very strange and perplexing outcomes.
0: I mean, it's it's funny that the, the one time that false consciousness gets a, a great hearing, or some version of it gets a great hearing in the mainstream press, is when uh, commentators on the right wish to defend historical slave owners. It's like, well, it was just, you know, their consciousness was determined by the material conditions that prevailed at the time. You think, well, wow, yeah.
1: It's funny that they'd be so quick to use that then when they normally are amongst the most shrill and defensive voices when you try to use that concept in any other. You know, context.
0: Obviously, one of the questions that that plays out through the book is is around you know it returns in various chapters. is around the concept of the public sphere, and you cite Nancy Fraser's I think very very good uh, work on all the various exclusions to the historical public sphere, um, while mounting you know both a defence of the concept uh, and the need for some sort of functioning public sphere. So the question I suppose is motivated I think in part by a feeling that there are these grand claims which are mobilized by people usually who have kind of reasonably well-paid jobs, the few that remain in the public sphere, to talk about the exercise of public reason and its vital function in a democracy and holding uh, political actors to account. Is that what actually happens?
1: Um, No, I mean, I, I feel that we don't have a sort of functional single public sphere, and not only are many of the critiques that, that Nancy Fraser made of it, as far as people being excluded on the basis of, of, of you know, what they are, who they are. Um, but then, you know, various conversations that there are around the culture wars and, you know, various forms of, of cultural and economic division also prevent there from being a singular public sphere. And, and the, you know, the inventor of the public sphere uh, idea, Habermas, never really uh, alleged that there was a single public sphere either. So, you know, again, it's one of those kind of concepts that we have to be careful about sort of rarefying too much. There's a lot of, of, of different public spheres out there. The Republican public sphere in Indiana that's sort of socially conservative and is very different. Neither you or I are probably in that very much. And that leads to a certain degree of, of you know, we're confused about them. They're confused about us. Um, and that's putting it mildly. And... um I don't know. So I think the public sphere is a bit like democracy in the sense it's one of these things that's sort of an ideal that exists in the world in practice only in sort of partial or fragmented forms and um you know probably can never exist in a completely whole and and sort of utopian form where everyone is included and everyone is in the same conversation. But more to the point, so again coming to Wendy Brown, um she makes a point in her earlier book on neoliberalism that you know democracy is something that you don't just um it doesn't just happen you have to sort of value it and practice it and tend it you know almost like a garden or something for me if a public sphere has any kind of purpose it becomes the place in theory where we might do that kind of work together and have those kinds of conversations and that's the bit that sort of missing you know I, I think you know i know there is a certain sort of nihilistic side and fascistic side to some of the politics that have arisen recently in the last sort of 10 20 years but i think most people believe that their politics is the route to a better world in some way it's just that we're not having part of the problem not the whole problem but part of the problem at least is that not only are we not having the conversations with each other about what that looks like but we've gotten so divergent about what that could look like but it's not possible to have a lot of those kinds of conversations um, and there, there is no sort of form of public sphere media or whatever that would make that possible
0: yeah i think i think that's true i i try to sort of adhere to the idea that you can only understand conservatism you can only understand the right if you proceed from the basis that there is some sort of positive political project there that either they're attempting to ward off what they see as a socially dangerous exercise in destruction or they're attempting to preserve something they regard as fragile uh, and so on and so on and so on and that that only that way can you get access to the interior of what conservatism is and how it acts but i find it hard <laughs> increasingly hard
1: yeah it's difficult isn't it i think we have to remember that these movements are confluences of many different people who have quite a lot of different um you know, priorities, and some of them are, are, are people that you can reasonably have a conversation with and who, you know, right or wrong, mostly wrong, have, um, do have ideas about a, a better world. And, and if you look at the history of neoliberalism, and there's certainly evidence that, for instance, the original architects of, of, of neoliberalism saw it as a political solution, as well as being, you know, an economic system, that it would prevent the kinds of totalitarianism that arose in the Second World War from arising again, the free market would do that. I mean, they was totally wrong, and that model was already discredited when they said that. But at least that, you know, you can sort of identify that. Obviously, the system has changed now, um, and it's kind of indirectly had the effect of leading towards possibly more totalitarianism and fascism, and, and very the very things that they try to get away from, which only shows its kind of uh, incoherence and inconsistency. I think there are other aspects of these of these movements. Um, you know their misogyny, their racism, and stuff that can't just be sort of explained and understood. We have to call them what they are, and and I I don't really want to waste a lot of time in trying to kind of you know see where that comes from. I think I think lots of very qualified social scientists have have explored the history of of racism and other um, types of of, of identity based you know hate um, for a long time, and we sort of have the answers there. But you know, in in every historical moment, we need to be asking some older questions uh, again and again. And I think um, here we can at least try to see where some of these of these people um, have come from and what they're about. It's not easy. It's not easy, and we can't expect them to do the same thing for us.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that really sticks in people's throats, actually. Uh, (laughs) So, I mean, in terms of those older questions, I mean, I suppose one of the things I I found most provocative about the book and it's also present in, in the earlier book on social media and it came to me really while I was thinking about that that question of the public sphere. You know I was reminded of uh, Richard Sennett's very strange book The The Fall of Public Man which is a really genuinely very very weird um, book in some ways um, but but it has a, a kind of really fascinating and I think quite important emphasis on, and I, w- I went back to it a few years ago when I was sort of thinking about Social media, uh, myself, and it has a sort of this kind of fascinating emphasis on the way that feeling and emotion, um, you know, you know, he talks about a tyranny of intimacy, and but he he talks about the way that a culture which values emotion above all and cannot make the separation between, or or in which the separation between public and private is increasingly um, erased, and so the idea of someone acting. Uh, you know, in, in their public persona. Once that is erased, he, he says, you know, it transmutes political categories into psychological ones. Um, and I just found that, you know, incredibly provocative. And it just it kept springing to mind while reading, you know, the number of times in which you're exploring a concept. And actually it seems to circle back to this question of the way in which emotion really underlies the very kind of fragile boat of reason
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think not to be too autobiographical about this, but I think someone who knows my, uh, you know, that knows that my first degree was in cognitive science and psychology would be able to identify that even in the book that I'm writing about politics, because um, I don't think that you can fully, and this is something I'm always telling my students, you can't fully separate the the kind of subjective experience of these kinds of discussions and media that we're talking about uh, from, you know, the political uh, effects and context that they have right on some level as human beings we're coming to these these conversations you know vulnerable with with particular kind of forms of uh, emotional baggage and tendencies and personalities and so forth and um again that's that i suppose that's another reason why i'm very resistant to the forms of rationalist uh, discourse about you know the free marketplace of ideas and you know have everybody just present their opinion and the audience will be able to discern which is the right, you know, the right conclusion and all of this kind of stuff, because I just don't see, um, I don't see it as being a process that's that, that rational or that mechanistic or working on that level at all.
0: But is there a, I mean, is there a cultural question here? There's a question about the way in which we value or even talk about or think about emotion. Uh, you know, I mean, because there's there's a there's a, a you know the imperative to sort of express your feelings at all times rather than interrogate them. I mean, that's a you know again, I think a vulgarisation of a much more complex cultural imperative. But like, it does seem to me that there is there is you know a question to be asked about the role of you know a, 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 of that kind of emotional expression in politics and whether we should actually be kind of pushing back against it a bit
1: yeah that's a tricky one i mean you know can you push back against what exactly i mean we're obviously we're, we're, we're going to be emotional obviously we're not going to be you know objective about those things i mean it might be a case of not there or like binary yes or no but rather greater or lesser it's interesting to me in some discussions you now hear that the phrase kind of tone policing which is arisen as far as like how people should or should not be allowed to talk about you know particular issues that that they find very distressing or that make them particularly angry um, and I never really know where I stand on this because you can sort of see that you know very strong emotions in some cases really don't help the discussion at all even if a person is very justified in feeling the way they do on the other hand it feels inappropriate to turn around and tell them to change that emotion or, or approach the discussion without it you know um, with I mean this, again, this is the problem with, with sort of rationalist language for talking about these things as basic processes. we just have to accept that th- these are our limitations. Um, and we're also living in an era in which you know these forms of, of human feeling are kind of commodified in themselves. This is what I tried to write about in my last book um, that you know affect is is a source of, of surplus value really. And the way we feel about things is the most important thing that a capitalist economy can can control.
0: Right, I mean, that question about tone policing, I think or, or you know how to approach that. I, I confess having the same sort of ambivalence around it, right? like to 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 have the the sense, especially when it's mediated digitally, that there is that there is an impetus to a sort of strong cultural codification towards ever more intense forms of expression. And those forms of expression aren't wholly false. But they you know, they also have a feedback loop to the people who you know who engage in them. And so very often, although one might think of of, of those kind of very strong expressions as a form of catharsis, it, it also seems because it might well be that. It also seems to me that 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 it also has a tendency to loop back on itself and 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 as with many feedback loops, it sort of amplifies and tends towards the sort of, Tends to become almost a sort of exercise in psychological damage, and it seems to me that's you know very clear and particularly you know difficult for those of us who who sort of seek after equality because you know <laughs> uh, one, one absolutely doesn't want to to say oh well you know that's convenient but could you keep that at home please could you not bring that to to the discussion I mean it's it's obviously vital that that's there but you know I don't know whether we need a better account of catharsis or how you know a, a kind of transformative catharsis but but i certainly have no idea where that would come from
1: well i think this this kind of points to the limited value in some sense of, of certain forms of debate you know why are we looking for catharsis before we've actually solved the problems that are causing this pain in the first place mm-hmm. you know actually what we should be doing is building towards um, a society that has ameliorated many of these of these structural problems and to me that that isn't a question of like of what debates I'm going to have on you know, Twitter or, or in these kinds of, especially digitally mediated public spheres, um, Zoom events or whatever. I, to be honest with you, even though I write about politics and I'm very interested in it, I just don't have those conversations. I, I think that it's best to kind of team up with people who kind of see the world similarly and work and do things and work towards you know, particular kinds of, of, of solutions that you can bring about that make the world better. And it's it's action rather than talking that's really going to um, to lead to change in the long run. I I don't want to have lots of. I mean, we're having a very lovely conversation now, but in general, I don't want to go out to the world and have lots of, you know, lots of emotionally charged conversations about extremely, you know, complicated and difficult political issues. Particularly when there's so much um, opportunity for for misunderstanding one another, of offending one another, of these kinds of things. I'd rather just get to work.
0: One of the places where this all comes together, and as you, I think, observed earlier, it's now very... I was about to say very fashionable, but I was, you know, perhaps just that it's an object of concern or perhaps that that, uh, a certain class of people have noticed something that's been going on for a while. Um, But so that's obviously the the question of conspiracy theory, which, you know, it does seem to me brings together a lot of these questions, you know, not only uh, about truth and about, you know, the way in which certain people are insulated from I think you observe somewhere in the book that there are certain classes of people who are very happy about you know the the spread of conspiracy theory yes. um because it takes attention away from them so that's maybe a conspiracy theory of my own uh but you know I mean I think maybe this is a place to to kind of get into it then like so we know that, that there there is you know this this kind of growth in the popularity of conspiracy theory and we know that it's mediated technologically we know that it has like these strong digital roots you know, and, and the conventional account of it is that it's dangerous and it's poisonous and so on because it, because it leads people to believe untrue things. You get quite a lot deeper than that diagnosis. So tell us some more.
1: Well, I suppose the inversion that I make in my book is rather than talking about conspiracy theories as a cause, um, which is not to say they are not a cause of, of people being you know, misinformed, um, I try to talk about them as an effect of something else and to sort of trace the origins of them. And I think that, you know, power is conspiratorial. I spent a lot of time uh, in this book kind of researching and writing a section on the, the history of capital as conspiracy, because it is conspiratorial. If you look at the tobacco industry, the oil industry, the plastics industry, the you know pharmaceutical industry, you find more conspiracies than you could possibly, you know, ever recount. Um but, you know, as as with much of the kind of information that people actually need to know about the world, it's relatively dull stuff. I mean, it's like, it's exactly what you would expect if you do know about capitalism. It's like, well, of course. Um, but knowing that power is exercised against the interests of the public, using the the kind of control and manipula- manipulation of information is, you know, um, where does that take us? It's helpful. Um, but that's on its own without a broader literacy around around capital and, and especially against the backdrop of lots of very fanciful bits in our sort of entertainment uh, culture, historically and contemporaneously. You know, things, I mean, I mentioned X-Files and police detective dramas and so forth in the book. You know, it's not really any wonder that conspiracy theories exist given the balance of power um, and the kind of structural form that the world takes and the kind of invitations to to believe things about what that may look like, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's utterly predictable. So, yeah, I guess I look at it as an effect. And I think that if you, if you kind of make the exercise of power less, less secretive and, um, you know, address some of the kind of structural origins of, of conspiracy theory, then some of them will, will go away. I mean, not all of them, but it's like, it's, it's an indicator of other, of other, problems in our in our political environment i suppose
0: you know i find it interesting on two levels is one you know that the way in which these you know that the, you, you dig really deep into the roots of a kind of historical conspiracy theory and you see okay well these emerge you know then that they're, they're, they 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 exist prior to democratic suffrage but but they they also get really really strong you know when you have these kind of victorian moves towards universal suffrage because the question then you know because historically you know talking about a conspiracy as a way to to run a state or a city state is a completely rational way to describe the way that court politics operates for instance you know if you have a powerful ruler and people operating in a court then conspiracy is the way in which politics is just conducted so you you have like you know it's it it's funny it seems to me that that you know, this becomes recognised and becomes part of you know the stuff that people are concerned about. Once they realise that they don't want to be governed that way anymore, and then you get you know, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of other conspiracy theories that tell you about the sort of moral character of your rulers. You get like um, these kind of really lurid libels associated with with you know printed and circulated about the the royals in pre-revolutionary France. So there's sort of moral corruption there, which it feels kind of a bit like some of the stuff that's going on today with the QAnon stuff. But, but yeah, so I mean, it seems to me that on the one level, these are about, you know, feeling democratically disempowered, right? So the feeling that there's something going on that almost feels kind of pre-democratic, that feels feudal, that feels like there's this power structure which governs you and in which you have very little say. And that seems to me to be completely correct. <laughs> you know, not, not perhaps in the way that it, it, it is described, but the feeling seems to me to be completely true. And so I wonder whether you see... You know, in the way in which these conspiracies sort of change and shift, whether there is something in the stories they themselves tell that shift over time that maybe tell you a bit about the era in which they're done. So, for instance, the kind of 90s sort of slash late 90s conspiracy theories, you know, the X-Files stuff, for instance, but there was a lot more of that around at the time. It's yes, the government is bad. It's hiding the truth from you, but also you know, we can uncover it and uh, you know, and actually the universe is perhaps a little more benevolent and it's actually the government that's the problem and whatever. Seems to me now there's a much more nihilistic and a much more kind of depressive aspect of these conspiracy theories, which which, you know, really seem to centre around people having almost no political agency whatsoever. Um, so what is you know, what is your reasoning of the culture that is producing these these conspiracy theories?
1: Well, that's that's a really fascinating question. And, um, you know, there are probably specialist cultural theorists who can answer that question in a much fuller way uh, than I can. But I, I, as you say, I did spend quite a lot of time for the book kind of looking at this and the history. I mean, we were saying earlier about how history shapes consciousness, right? So obviously, in different moments, there can be different kind of cultural features. And since conspiracy theories are kind of a cultural and political feature, they are also going to differ. To me, there's something in particular about the obsession with aliens in the '90s. Just at the moment that kind of, I suppose, post-Cold War liberalism—the Clinton government, the you know second term, especially of Clinton—and and the Blair government—and you know, there's this very kind of gleaming, um, shiny, techno-enabled um, liberal capitalism um, that's sort of dominant at that moment. And so then, well, where, where does our suspicion take us at that moment? It takes us towards kind of extraterrestrials, Se- seemingly nothing on Earth could be so bad. So we have to assume that the conspiracies ar- arise mainly uh, as far as extraterrestrials um, or in relation to extraterrestrials. To me, there's a connection there. I don't know if I've explained mm,
0: that. Mm, yes, no, I see. I see.
1: Some of the anger that we've been talking about, politically speaking, occurs because every time there's a sort of wave of, of you know, quote unquote, progress or promise or, or kind of more progressive governments that are, in fact, just beholden to kind of liberal capitalism, um, it's sort of like ringing the dinner bell and then not serving dinner, you know, like so. Then there's always a backlash when these things that claim to be emancipatory are not. And so I think we're in one of those moments now. We have been basically since, you know, the year 2000 i mean it has really been just downhill from there so unsurprisingly then we start to get other kinds of conspiracy theories that are much more kind of earthly and much more about what happens here and about the failure of the systems that we that we actually have you know and QAnon is sort of the the pinnacle of that it's like the whole system is completely wrong it's completely run by pedophiles and you know I mean, it's quite similar to some of the things that have been said about the sort of Illuminati or whatever in the longer run. But now it's kind of right there in the sort of corridors of power, um, and it's you know things like child abuse again. That's very sort of real and uh, disturbing, rather than you know this this alien visited. You know what I mean? So um, there's definitely, I think, aspects of the cultural imagination and the way, you know the the particular cultural features that every different uh, era has um but i suppose there's also something about see i don't talk about conspiracy theories in isolation in the book i, mean, I there's a chapter about them but i think it's really important to to put conspiracy theories on a sort of balancing scale with the forms of liberal positivism and complacency and hypocrisy that um, i also talk about in the, the chapter that follows and i call this the politics of suspicion that you have some people who are hyper suspicious and completely disenfranchised from. The system, um, and you see this now playing out with the kind of you know contestation of, of, of Biden's victory, Biden and Harris's victory, um, and then that sort of counterbalance with people who insist there's no problem at all, right, or who make only very small and limited allowance for the possibility that there are actually quite serious problems of corruption and stagnancy within the system. And you know, remember Trump's. Um, Rhetoric all the way through has been about draining the swamp and kind of fixing the system and all this kind of stuff. As Adam Curtis puts it, you know, he's using language that almost could have come from the Occupy movement to do that. Um, and so the backlash then against that is basically, well, you know, everything's everything's fine. All these people now want to sort of want Biden and Harris to take us back to normal. And I think that that kind of complacent, myopic relationship to sort of liberal capitalism only itself adds fuel to the fire of, of conspiracism because it um, it limits like any conversation of actually that we could have realistically about what really is wrong with the systems that we've built and if you, if you make space for that conversation perhaps then it stops we stop needing to have conspiracy theories as a way of kind of airing our ideas about what might be wrong
0: I think there's a really good way of thinking about conspiracy theories as a kind of you know slightly truncated political reasoning but you know the 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 instinct i think is a you know is is not one to to be deplored and the real danger here is that you know you see it i think in in sort of liberal commentary on conspiracy theory is like well you know the structure of conspiracy theory proves that say marxism Uh, or any kind of Marxist thinking is nonsense as well, because it also relies on large groups of people acting in concert, or, uh, you know, thinking about people in large groups with, you know, pursuing their own interests against the other. And you think, yes, this is exactly, this is exactly the problem. (laughs) You know, this is the real danger of these sort of liberal responses. Um, You know, because like, like, you know, the instinct that say, you know, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that you hear people extolling the free market and the virtues of work while also engaged in corruption and graft and all of that. It's like, th- this is a correct, this is a completely correct instinct. And the problem comes when, you know, w- when, when you, I think as you're suggesting, because you lack, you know, the toolkit, the, the kind of, the, the, the ability to think, you know, how these things operate, um, that you you kind of fall short On the question of agency, this is a problem and therefore there must be someone behind it. And now that's not to say there aren't people in the world who aren't culpable, because I think we can sometimes lose that on the sort of more academic end of the left. There are people who who are responsible and who who should be considered guilty. But like, you know, do you see what I mean about like there being something to recover there?
1: I suppose not to, you know, wave my red flag too, too vigorously, but I suppose <laughs> I somebody asked me recently why I'm not a conspiracy theorist, if I think there's something, you know, at the heart of it, reasonable about ha- about having a tendency towards uh, conspiracist beliefs, even if the content of many of those beliefs is offensive. Um, and I, I sort of responded that, well, I've, I've spent some time reading, reading Marx and, and other people in that tradition who, instead of conspiracy theories, give a much more kind of um, useful set of methods for understanding power and economy and politics and how they all fit together. And if you, I think to me, that's been the sort of inoculation against that kind of stuff. You know, you hear conspiracists say things that sound half reasonable sometimes, like big pharma. And I think of "Hmm, OxyContin, millions of Americans, you know, addicted and all these kinds of things. And I think, well, I don't need to get into a kind of crazy anti-vaxxer theory about big pharma because, you know, a Marxian critique of the pharmaceutical industry and its tendency to exploit and try to find surplus value, whatever. You don't have to be, um, you know, hugely Marxist about it, but you sort of, in in having that, you are, I think, given something else that functions much better than these sorts of fanciful and, and un, un, unfounded beliefs that people have. You know, Marx thought he was a, a scientist. He really, if anyone struggled with any of the sort of huge tomes of of capital or whatever we will see that it's like every issue is doubled from every possible angle and that's i mean i know there are conspiracy theorists who think that they approach things in the same way but um i would beg to differ mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. i mean i think i think you know that the the role of kind of political imagination here is is really important and i suppose like in this account, there are, there are the two forms of imagination. Like one is the the conspiratorial one, but one is the sort of you know liberal democratic idealist one. The one that sort of thinks the the world can or should or ideally would function like a sort of West Wing box set, <laughs> um which is you know really. I mean, it's as fantastical as you know uh, uh, some of, some of the you know really big conspiracies theories out there. I mean, I suppose the other side of it is that you know I I also recognise that that one of the other fantasies is about exit and exodus and it seems to me that this is if one were to look at the kind of world that you account for in in, in this book right so using this this question of like what you can trust what information you can trust um, you know as a window through which to look on the world you know the the, the 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 world that has created this problem looks like pretty terrible so my concern is that there is a politics Sort of waiting to be born, which is one of retreat and exodus, and you know whether that's a sort of you know uh, il faut cultiver notre jardin, or whether it's uh, you know uh, uh, just some other kind of exodus or withdrawal or separatism. I, I worry about it a great deal, and I worry about its increasing attractiveness to people who who've had their fingers burnt, who are on the left of politics. So I, I, I want to ask, and it's sort of my final question is is you know uh, simply. What is to be done? Uh, you know, what are the routes to 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 pick up a political practice that acts against this stuff?
1: Well, of course, you've saved the most difficult question, uh, <laughs> which I should have predicted. But um, no, this is a good question, and obviously, I you know, it's very easy to go around um, pointing at problems without suggesting any uh, any any answers. On the other hand, the answers are the most difficult part. One thing that one could say. Um, is maybe, first of all, let's not expect the answers to be immediate and be obvious, because we've been dealing with these problems in some form or other for quite a while. I think that, I suppose there are two things. One is um, that, you know, part of the the, the, the sort of multi decades so of 70, 80 year shift that we've seen that's left us in this position is, is a sort of war on the public that started you know, with Mont Pelerin and the Institute of Economic Affairs and these kinds of groups and other people and ideologies that kind of wanted to make everything private. And that's already a kind of exodus, right? We talk about public sphere, but we, we neglected to mention at the time that the public itself and the idea of a public good and all these kinds of things have already been sort of lost or greatly reduced. Um, so I think it's pretty imperative for us to start to pull that to pull that back, and we can do that in our discourse. We can do that in our in our in our media. We can do that in our in our collective imagination. Um, and it's not interpassivity, you know. It's not this kind of the bad guy is a CEO. It's the opposite. It's sort of visualizing something that and making it a bit more normal, you know. I think those who control what is or is not normal are the ones who control quite a lot of power, as far as you know, cultural and ideological influence, you know. So with that, redemption of the public. The other thing I would say, kind of as a related form of that, is that the idea that any given person on their own can make a difference and um, that by acting alone we sort of can go and find answers, to me is a dangerous um, delusion. I think um, that we have to be forming groups, we have to be making s- sort of squads. a great article the other day I read about the, the sort of historical... Um, role of the squad Um, not in a militaristic sense but in the sense of like pulling friends and like minds together and getting to work um, and sharing money and sharing resources with a view towards achieving specific um, political ends that cannot be done on your own and um, so I suppose I would like to see more of that it's kind of a strange untruth that we say oh well the right are all individualists and the left are all collectivist because you know if you read the the you know Hayek or Marx or whatever that's what you'll see in kind of um in in the text so to speak but the reality seems to be the other way around that you know I've done quite a lot of um quite careful research on how the right operate and they're incredibly collectivist incredibly you know um resourceful in kind of getting together collaborating and making projects that will you know undermine the history of communism in some way or change the world or you know produce this does it's not always done with the best kind of cultural or or flair or or whatever because that's not necessarily their strong point but but they're quite collectivist in the way that they go about trying to to push their ideology to, to the top meanwhile a lot of friends i have on the left are very daunted and don't know what to do and so resort to kind of an individualist model where the only thing they can trust is their own their own hands and i'm always trying to you know pull my friends and 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 comrades together and say look we need to we need to having more joint conversations about what we are actually going to do let's make movies let's make films let's let's write books let's let's kind of take back something um jointly so i think you know i could i could try to give more specific um pointers as to what people should do but i think that's really not my place but I think that is a good strategy, at least, of kind of getting people to work together. You know, there's such a culture of celebrity, particularly in terms kind of younger age groups. You know, everybody born from, like, the 80s onwards seems to want to be a celebrity in some way. And I see that as much on the left as on the right, unfortunately. And I just think, yeah, okay, I'm coming out with a book. This is my to kind of push the book or whatever. But I'm not doing that for the brand of Marcus Gilroy wear. I don't care. I would, I would sacrifice that tomorrow. I'm, I made this book because I wanted to actually communicate ideas to a large number of people that are not things that can be boiled down to 280 characters and you know i I think that this has always got to be a collective process
0: that's a brilliant place to end it marcus thank you very much thank you that's it for this week marcus's book after the fact the truth about fake news is out from repeater now go and pick it up and my thanks to Marcus for such an enlightening conversation. My thanks as ever to my brilliant producer at Navarra Media, Ciao Ravens, and stay locked here on Resonance 104.4 FM and we'll be back at the same time in the same place next week, still burning away in the midst of the tempest. See you next week. Bye-bye. This broadcast was brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash Support.